This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Okay, now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Our speaker for today is Max Cameron. Max is over here. He's going to be talking about politics and practical wisdom, or should we send politicians back to school? I just got to read this. This is very entertaining. If you want to be a doctor, a nurse, teacher, lawyer, firefighter, soldier, or entrepreneur, we have schools for that. So why don't we have schools for politicians? Would you go to a doctor who had never been to medical school? Or fly on a plane with a pilot who has never gone to flight school? Of course not. So why is politics different? In this engaging talk, Professor Max Cameron explains how he helped create the world's first school for politicians, and then explores the age-old question of whether politicians can be trained to be wise practitioners. Please welcome Max for today's speech. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and <coughs> congratulations to you and Wendy. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, thank you also to Ian for the invitation to be here. Um, when when Ian called me up, um, I said I uh, had just finished uh, writing a book called um, "Political Institutions and Practical Wisdom," and I'd be delighted to speak on the subject. I do have a couple of copies here, and would be I would be happy to sell them uh, at the author's discount, which is a mere forty-five dollars. <laughs> Um, I brought a couple of copies, optimistically thinking somebody might consider that a good price. I'm really delighted to be here. I think it's really terrific um, to see a group like this gathering on a regular basis to have conversations about issues that matter. I think that's essential to our democracy. Uh, and uh, particularly interesting uh, to see that, uh, you know, just looking at, at the, the pamphlet for the BC Human Association, are you good without God? I think that's a really Great question, a really interesting question. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today in some sense is related, and that is, what does it mean to be good in politics? Uh, my name is Max Cameron. I teach in the Department of Political Science at UBC. And since 2011, I've been the director of the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions. Uh, and when I took over the center, uh, we had a, and continue to have a very activist advisory board that includes uh, Stephen Jaroslawski, a prominent financier from Montreal who made a gift to UBC that created my center and endowed a chair that's associated with it, uh, as well as a number of other prominent uh, Canadians, uh, Mike Harcourt, uh, Joy McPhail, Anne McClellan, Preston Manning. Uh, and my advisory board said, you know, we really, we really need to look at the question of why don't more good people go into politics? And you know, some of my colleagues kind of scratched their heads and thought, well, what does that mean? I mean, what, what do we as academics have to say about the subject? You know, why don't more good people go into politics? How do we even know what a good person is or what, what would we consider to be a good person in politics? And I thought, you know, notwithstanding the fact that it's a sort of a cheeky question, let's try this. And so we organized a conference with that title, Why Don't More Good People Go Into Politics? Uh, and it was really a very lively exchange. And afterwards, um, we were approached, uh, Rick, Rick Anderson, who, who I saw just the other day, um, it approached us on behalf of Preston Manning, who wasn't at the conference, and, and said, you know, uh, Preston has an idea, and he'd like to share it. So Preston spoke with the president of UBC uh, at the time, Stephen Toop, and Toop spoke with my dean, 
Gage Averill and Gage turned to me. The idea was, why don't we create a school for politicians? And the and that's where this idea of you know why don't we why don't we teach politicians politics right came from. Uh, you know, this is a sort of a line of, of precedence. You know, if you want to be a uh, a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, a firefighter, a soldier, an entrepreneur. We've got schools for all of those things. So why don't we have a school for politicians? When you think about it, politicians manage the biggest and most complex organizations in our society, right? Governments. They, they have control over the biggest budgets. You know, the budget of British Columbia alone is over $40 billion. There are no other organization in our society that controls that kind of money. Uh, they make the decisions that influence the most basic aspects of our lives, the minutia of regulations, uh, to questions of war and peace, uh, questions of fundamental justice. Politicians make really important decisions, and yet it's an arena that's dominated by, by amateur, which at one level is a good thing, right? We do want our political system to be open to anyone. It's part of being a democracy. Fundamental right of democracy is not only do you get to vote periodically in elections, but you're all entitled to run for office as well, without exclusion. So nobody would argue that there should be barriers put in the way of people running for office. But there is, an, I think, an important question here, which is why don't we at least prepare people for public life? Why don't we actually uh, provide some training? Um, and uh, you know, you might say, well, it would be elitist to expect that people go to school before they enter politics. I would actually argue it's the opposite. If, unless you train people, unless you educate them, unless you provide some way through our public institutions for people to acquire the knowledge and skill, to run for public life. Do you want me to? Yeah. Oh, okay, there we go. So I'll stand back for that. All right, <laughs> this seems to be the, the safe zone. Okay, I'll stay here. <clears throat> so, so um, if, if we, you know, my view is that if we don't provide through our public institutions some opportunity for people to acquire the knowledge and skill to run for office, then what we're going to tend to get is the same elites. Uh, uh, you know, without the kind of renewal that, that we might otherwise get. And so this is what caused us at the center to say, well, what, what could we do about this? Maybe what we need to do is to create something that's never been done before anywhere. And we actually did a study. We looked all around the world. Um, we looked at Brazil. We looked at Turkey. We looked at Japan, the United States, European countries. And what we found was that in most places where you have legislatures, there's some kind of training once people are elected. Political parties pretty well everywhere provide people training to campaign to run for office. But nobody takes people who aspire to serve in public life and offers them the opportunity to acquire the skill and knowledge that they need to be legislators before they actually run for office. And uh, that's what we want to do. And so we created this, this school. Uh, Preston Manning, again, as I said, who is one of the kind of uh, forces behind this initiative, uh, has a wonderful metaphor. He says, he thinks about the pursuit of power as it's a little bit like you're in, the, you're in the jungle, and all of the jungle creatures are trying to get to the watering hole. And some are slithering along the ground, and others are hopping from branch to branch, and others are flying through the canopy, and they're all trying to get to the watering hole. And if you wait until they've actually got to the watering hole, it's too late. Once people have been elected, indeed, once they've been nominated by their party and they're running, the chance of actually having any impact on them is pretty minimal. You want to capture people before they get too close to power and provide them with some, some trainings to enable them to be effective if they are successful. So what do we do? What we've done is we've created this school. Um, it's a pilot program. 
we want to expand it into something permanent. But right now, what we've discovered, or what we found based on focus groups and based on the experience that we've had over the last six years, is that what seems to work is two weekend boot camps. So we invite people to come to the UBC campus. And we get them to start off by doing things like, you know, tell us the story of how you decided you wanted to enter politics. Um, and people normally will say, well, I want to make the world a better place. And to which we say, sure, everybody wants to make the world a better place. But tell us your story, what it is about you that makes you think that you would be particularly good at representing your community or achieving some goal, some cause, some outcome that you desire. And then we get them to tell their stories in front of practitioners. So politicians who have served in public life with distinction, and they listen, and they offer feedback and advice. And then we do, we had a session in which Preston Manning and, and Alan Shapiro, who's an expert on communication with the public, talked about how you speak with different kinds of audiences, how to read an audience, how to notice who's nodding, who's frowning, throw out some ideas, see how people respond, and then kind of hone in on the messages that work. Not to be someone who stands before an audience and says, I'm an expert, or I have, a, I have a message, and you need to hear it. But rather, where are you coming from? What's going on in your lives? And how can I connect to that? How can I make what I have to say meaningful and relevant to you? Some people might say, well, that's sort of cynical. Isn't that what politicians always do? They try to read people, particularly they read the polls. And then they try to tell people what people want to know. That, there's some truth to that. I think you can be pretty mercenary if you don't know your own first principles. You don't fundamentally care about anything. And you're simply trying to win votes. But that's not the way most people are. And most people in politics actually enter politics because they care about something. They, they do want to make a difference. They want to serve a, coal, a, a cause. They want to advance uh, uh, their region, their city. Um, <clears throat> they, they have some, some kind of uh, uh, project. And so learning to tailor your message to your audience. We then sit them down with, uh, with uh, uh, media. We have Catherine Gretzinger, who's a wonderful reporter in the journalism school at UBC. And she and Richard Zussman will sit down with our participants and put them through an interview. Right? So you're, we, we'll give them situations. Imagine that you were just appointed to be the attorney general of the province, and you've got a whole pile of speeding tickets. How can you be a scofflaw and be the top law enforcer in the province? And you have to answer that question, right? So here what, you're, here what politicians are, aspiring politicians are learning is how to apologize and how not to duck an issue. Because if you try to get around Catherine Gretzinger, she'll come down on you in the nicest imaginable way but you'll come off looking pretty terrible, right? So learning how to be contrite, how to recognize you've made a mistake, how to move beyond that, this is an important thing. I think probably many of you know what it's like to um, receive a disingenuous apology. Somebody says, I'm, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. Not like I said anything wrong, but you may be really sensitive, and I'm sorry about that for you, right? We all know what a disingenuous apology is. We see that in politics a lot, right? So how do you learn um, to communicate in a meaningful sort of way? Um, this last, uh, so that was, that was what we did on, on the first weekend this past uh, summer. Uh, the, se the subsequent weekend, we went down to City Hall. We sat in the council chambers. We had Larry Campbell come in. And we actually had, first of all, a panel with uh, Francis Beulah um, and uh, Andrea Reimer um, and uh, B.C. Lee. And we talked about the opioid crisis. And then we ran a simulation of a council meeting. Um, we organize our people into parties and caucuses. They have to choose a leader, pick a name. One of the things that's really quite remarkable 
I don't know if any of you have heard of the Stanford prison experiment where scientists in Stanford <laughs> created a prison situation and people started to act as guards and prisoners uh, to the point that they had to shut down the experiment because it was the guards were getting abusive and the prisoners were starting to rebel and so forth. Uh, there, w without the negative connotations, we have a, something a little bit like that, which is as soon as we form people into political parties, they become tribal. As soon as you've got a party and there's a name and a leader uh, and your government or your opposition, people become very committed to that party. Like this year, one of our um, participants had a terrible allergy attack, and we had to carry him out in an ambulance during one of the sessions. Um, who wrote to express concern for him after the weekend session was over? It was his caucus. So people just feel a kind of a connection as soon as you put people into a team, right? So that's a really powerful you know, fact about human psychology is we are groupish. We, we, this is something that psychologists have demonstrated over and again. And so one of the things that we try to do is make sure that that groupishness doesn't get too strong, right? We want to break that up as well. So we have introduced in our summer institute a, a, an idea that comes from training in medical school. I don't know if, it, <clears throat> if you're aware, but one of the big problems that we have in our medical schools is that people go into medical school because they want to work in a caring profession, right? They want to heal people. They want to cure people. They want to help people um, recover from Ill illness or injury. And so the kind of people who are drawn to medical school tend to be very high on empathy. By the time they graduate, they're low on empathy. <laughs> it's a little bit disturbing, right? And there are a number of reasons for it. Some of it has to do with the fact that people who go into medical school tend to be young people who haven't had a lot of exposure to real pain, illness, disease, death, and, and they're getting bombarded by that, particularly when they do their clerkship in their third year. They're going around hospital with doctors. But another part of it is they're learning the wrong things by seeing bad practice as well as good. You walk into a hospital and you follow a doctor around on, on her daily rounds, you're going to see things that you are going to approve and things you are not going to approve of. So students are going to learn good and bad from what they observe. And so in order to encourage students to learn the best things and to be very reflective about what they're learning, the UBC School of Medicine organizes reflective circles where people are asked to, first of all, deprime people who go into the program to watch for certain kinds of behaviors. What are you going to do if the doctor fat shames a patient who's lying on the OR? How, how are you going to feel about that? Because you could see that. Um, then to notice this behavior, to reflect on it in their, in their circles, and then at the end of the clerkship, to come to some kind of judgment about the kind of practitioner they want to be. So we've introduced that in our program as well. We have sessions where we encourage people to say, to understand that going to be, there's going to be some powerful group dynamics at work, some of it's going to be very stressful for them, to reflect on this as they go through it and at the end to decide what kind of politician would I like to be. So um, the final part of the program after these two weekend boot camps that are very intensive, we form people into parties, we've got leaders, they've, they know how to run caucus meetings, they've run committee meetings, they're now ready. We take them to Victoria and we run a session in the legislature. We go into the legislative building, we have a tour of the building, it's an awesome experience, particularly walking into the legislative chamber for the first time. Standing there, you're on the, you know, in the desk of the premier or the leader of the opposition. You've got the speaker's chair, you've got the, um, the, the staff, um, you've got this magnificent space, uh, committee rooms, caucus rooms, and so forth. And then throughout the course of that weekend, we actually run a simulation of a legislature. Everything from choosing a speaker to standing orders to uh, question period, first, second, or first and second reading of, of bills, debates on bills, and ultimately uh, voting. And that takes place over three, 
day period. Um, and that's it. Then they're, then they're done. We ask them to keep ethnography, self-ethnographies or diaries throughout the process so we get a sense of what they're learning. Uh, but it's really practical, hands-on training. And it has really three, three qualities that are important. It's experimental, uh, it's experiential, and it's practical. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, um, it's experimental in the sense that we're interested in preparing people for politics as it really is. We're not going to give people, we don't want to teach people that politics is any different than it is. We know, we know that this is a very adversarial partisan arena that they're about to enter. And so as much as possible, we want to replicate that for them. But we also want them to be recognizing that there are ways of doing politics differently that they can experiment with, the kinds of things that they can do. They, they, that they, maybe aspects of politics they like. Some people love the cut and thrust of question periods. Some people love heckling and banging on their desks. Others don't. Other people prefer to work in the back rooms, to work as a team, to build the team, to try to make the team look good. Very different styles of leadership. People can experiment with that. There's often a bit of a tendency, particularly of young, ambitious uh, males, to want to sort of occupy leadership positions and are uncomfortable virtually in any other kind of position. Um, and we want, to, we want to encourage them to sort of pull back and think about how leadership can be team building and it doesn't necessarily involve you being out front all the time and expecting your team to make you look good, but rather your job is to make the team look good. Um, you know, so there, there's experimentation with what leadership means. Um, it's experiential, right? This is not learning from a textbook. You're not actually, you're, I mean, there is, for those who take this program for credit, you can, you can there is a text to read on the legislature and how it works. There is some learning that is of the kind that you could pick up through school, uh, through reading, through theory, or through description. But most of the learning that you're doing is learning by doing. It's practical and it's, it's hands-on. And, 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 and it's practical, right? It's, it's not professors of political science teaching you how to do this. It's practitioners. We are bringing practitioners in, former politicians, people like um, Andrew Reimer or Preston Manning, to do the work of actually running these simulations and doing the coaching that's involved in it. We, the academics, essentially create the program. We, we create the opportunity. We deliver it. But, but the actual work of coaching and mentoring is largely done, or as much as possible is done by, uh, by practitioners, as well as by our facilitators. We have a stable of graduate students who, who help with. So, so that's basically the way that this, this program works. And as I said, it's the only program of its kind anywhere in the world. So I want to give you an example of so the kind of person who goes through this program and the kind of learning that's possible in it. I want to give you an example. I'm going to uh, use uh, a made-up name for, for this person. I'll call, um, I'll call her Jasmine um, and uh, give you a sense of what her experience was in the program. So she, so she comes into the program. Uh, she's a First Nations person, and she uh, has spent 10 years working as an advocate for at-risk youth, youth dealing with addiction um, and homelessness and mental health issues. And uh, she spent a lot of time doing that kind of work, and now she wants to get elected. So the very first day we did, when we did the discussion, why do you want to go into politics, she started talking about how her father was a res residential school survivor, survivor. And she saw how he acquired his voice and his resilience in surviving that and in being the person that he is. And, and she said, I want, to be, I want to be like him. And I've been working as an advocate for 10 years. Now I want a seat at the table. I want to be a decision maker. And so we thought that that was a pretty, pretty compelling story. Uh, the uh, following weekend, we went over to the uh, to town hall, to city hall, 
and we ran the simulation in there. Um, and she was chosen to be one of the city councilors. And she did an absolutely superb job. She was an excellent, you could just sort of see how comfortable she was in that role, or seemed to be. Uh, and at the end of it, her party chose her, or nominated her, to be the leader of the party. She accepted the nomination. And then a couple of others were nominated. So one was a vice president of a major public sector union. The other was a vice president of an important riding association in BC. Both older white males. At that point, Jasmine pulled back. She said, I'll, I'll, I'm going to not accept the nomination. And a couple of us went over to her and said, you know, what's going on here? You said you want a seat at the table. Here's a chance to occupy that seat and to get some of that experience. And so you know, she hummed her heart and I said, don't you think you'd be good at it? She said, yeah, I think I would. So she let her name stand and she was elected. Later that afternoon, in one of our reflective circles, we were sitting talking about what had happened over the course of the day. And Andrea Reimer, who, who had facilitated this, or she had um, set up the, the simulation, uh, came by and sat down with our group. And I was just about, I had just asked um, Jasmine, I said, you know, there was a moment there where you were considering taking a leadership role and you hesitated. Tell me what was happening, what was going on for you. And she said, well, you know, I'm always second guessing myself. And I go from being sad and pensive to, you know, angry and, and, and outraged. I go back and forth and I don't feel entirely comfortable in that space. I always feel like I'm, like I'm not, I don't really, I really shouldn't be there. And if somebody else comes in who has a bit more experience and is willing to do something, my inclination is to pull back. So we had a bit of a discussion of that and then turned to Andrea Reimer. What was her advice? What would she say? And Andrea said, you know, the choice for you is not either to step up or to pull back. It's to step up or find somebody else who will and support that person. Right? So I thought that was a beautiful move because what Reimer was doing was she was saying, don't think about this in terms of you and your career and what's the choice for me. Think of this in terms of there's a goal, there's something that needs to be done. How do we get that done? And there are different ways that you can contribute to it. You don't always have to be the leader. You can contribute in other ways by finding somebody else and supporting them. But the point is, you're always engaged in that effort to attain your goals. I've been thinking a lot about Andrea Reimer over the course of the last week because I know she's going through this for herself. Um, so that is a, I think that was a very powerful learning moment for Jasmine. Later, we saw her dealing with um, a, one, of, one of these sort of very um, assertive, self-confident young male participants who tended to dominate the discussion. She took him aside and was overheard to say, I really want to build an inclusive caucus and you can really help me do that. Can you help me bring in more voices around the table? What a beautiful way of putting into practice what she had learned in this program. I saw her also struggle when we went over to Victoria and we had a parliamentary session and we, there were two people in our, there was actually two groups in the Summer Institute this year. This is the first time this has ever happened to us. We had um, a anti-SOGI activist. Do you, you all know what SOGI is? Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity Curriculum in the schools. So this is curriculum that's about encouraging kids to understand and be tolerant around issues of gender fluidity. And she's very, very, this is a, someone who's evangelical, Christian, very, very hostile to that. And we have other people in our group who are actually running for office to, to promote and defend this lady. And the very first day, you could see, you know, literally how they walked away from each other and, and didn't want to be in any kind of contact, right? 
And so we thought, we've got a big job on our hands this year to try to figure out how to keep this together, because this could become very explosive. So we caucused as a group. We got advice from the Inclusion and Equity Office of UBC and how to handle this. What are our obligations under BC law and in terms of UBC policy and so forth? Um, but then the ethos of our institution is cross-partisan. It's open to anyone. We are prepared to take anyone who's prepared to operate in accordance with UBC policies around harassment and bullying and so forth, um, and UBC human rights law, and who is committed to working across party lines. If you're prepared to do that, you're welcome in our program. And so we saw this issue bubble up. Uh, but let me tell you how, how, how it, it bubbled up and how it was resolved. The anti-SOGI activist at one point made a speech in which she argued what her caucus wanted, which was actually legalization of opioids. But she threw in something into her speech which was about not liking the fact that, there, that people who have um, male homosexual sex are entitled to certain kinds of drugs that prevent the transmission of HIV. She didn't like that. She sort of threw that in to her speech. And it made her whole caucus uncomfortable. The opposition had a member who was more or less openly gay. He stood up and he said, with respect to what you have said around the issues, I support you. She also told a personal anecdote about her son. With respect to you and your son, I support you. But with respect to calling gay sex risky behavior, there I disagree. And at that moment, the whole group, with the exception of a very small number of people, applauded him, including the caucus that this anti-SOGI activist was in. So they broke ranks as a party. <laughs> and there were people saying to us afterwards, at that moment, it felt for us this was not a simulation. This was real. At this point, we were all making real ethical decisions for ourselves. And Jasmine, who was the leader of the party, had to sit there and bite her tongue. She wanted to get up and applaud. But she, as the leader of the party, she couldn't. And she made that judgment. That also was a really mature judgment on her part, a judgment to be political, right? In the best sense, right? Not political in the crass sense, but political in the sense that I'm a leader, I have a responsibility. I'm not going to throw a colleague under the bus, even though I disagree with that colleague. What an interesting moment, what an interesting opportunity for learning and for then coming to terms with what it feels like to be in a position where politically you have to do something you fundamentally disagree. In politics, that, that sometimes happens. So I think what we are... What our participants are learning is what I call in this, in this book, and I take this from Aristotle, practical wisdom. The Greek term is phrenesis. It's how to do the right thing and to do it at the right time and in the right way and for the right reason. How do we know to break ranks or to be solidary, to step up or support somebody else to step up? Those kinds of decisions require judgment, they require reflection. Any practitioner, whether it's a nurse or teacher or doctor or lawyer, all practitioners of any profession have to make those decisions on a daily basis. As a teacher, I have to, do, I have to continuously deal with students coming to me. I can't make a deadline. What do I say? Do I, do I say, well, the rules are you submit or I deduct percentages off of your grade? Or do I stop and I say, what's going on? What's the issue here? Because maybe the student is dealing with anxiety, depression, problems at home, had a breakup. They're not coping. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a, an opportunity for a conversation to help the student get back on track. So do we uphold rules? Do we bend the rules? Are we flexible? These kinds of decisions practitioners have to make all the time. So what practical wisdom really is about, Aristotle said it's about knowing what's the right thing to do for yourself with respect to what's good for you, but what's good for your community as well. Again, it sounds 
a little bit vague. So he tried to help us to better understand what that meant. He said it's, it's, it's a mean. It's a mean between excess and deficiency. So let me give you an example. How do you learn courage? I mean, that's one of the things that we are trying to learn in this program, right? The courage to, um, to step up and be a leader, which can take real courage, for example, or to defend an unpopular position. That can take a lot of courage as well. Courage is, is required of us in friendships. It's required of us as civil society actors, members of civil society. It's required of us as politicians. What Aristotle said is we become courageous by exposing ourselves to danger and learning to make light of it. Now, I think about that when I go skiing, right? Every time I go skiing, I'm pushing myself to get to be a better skier. So I push myself a little bit harder every time. The more I do that, the better a skier I become. But I also know not to go too far. If you, are, if you make light, light of danger too much, that's recklessness. If you don't learn to make light of danger, that's cowardice. Bravery or courage is found in the middle. And so in most practices, we find that middle ground is where the, where the best decisions are made. Let me give another example, partisanship. This is one of the things that we were dealing with in our program this year. We actually ran a whole study around partisanship. We tested people when they came in to find out how partisan they were when they entered, how partisan they were when they went out. And part of the purpose of doing the reflective discussions is to map and to, and to follow how people thought about partisanship as they went through the program. And our, our view is we're not going to tell you what kind of partisan you should be. Right? Because there's no rule. There's no rule that says partisanship is good or bad or this is the way that you should be a partisan. But what we can say is you, you can, there's certainly too much partisanship. We know, we know it when it's excessive. If you are so partisan that you cannot hear what the other side is saying and you cannot reach compromises with the other side that would actually advance your own goal and the goals of your party, that's excessive partisan. If you are so nonpartisan, you can't even defend yourself in an argument. You can't be part of a team. That's not good either, because our politics is organized around teams called parties. And so partisanship is part of the practice. So finding that middle ground between deficient and excessive partisanship is necessary. But it's going to be different for every person. It's going to be different depending on the kind of party you're in. It's going to be different depending on your role in that party. It's going to be different depending on the setting, whether you're in caucus committee, in the House, or talking to the media. Partisanship plays a different role in all of those different spaces. And it played a role for Jasmine when she had to make a decision. Did she throw a colleague under the bus and get up and applaud with everybody else against her own colleague? Or did she sit there and bite her tongue? That was a, a moment for her of, of deciding what mattered more. Partisan caucus solidarity versus what her conscience told her was the right thing. That's the kind of a judgment that politicians have to make all the time. So finding that mean, and how do you find the mean? Aristotle said, uh, find a wise practitioner and do as they do. So you might say, well, that's, you know, how is that helpful, right? How is it helpful? What if I don't know who is a wise practitioner? What if I pick the wrong role model? Well, you know, imagine that you are about to learn a new practice. You're going to learn to play guitar or kayak or scuba dive, right? In all of those practices, you're going to find somebody who has done this before many, many, many times, preferably thousands of them. And you're going to, you're going to spend some time with, the, with that person, and they will, they will help mentor and coach you so that you acquire the practice. I just recently, my son recently became a scuba diver. So that, spent, that meant hours in the pool training. It meant hours reading books. It meant going through quizzes. 
and then going out into open water with experienced people and having them point out the mistakes and help and explain and guide. And at the end of it, you know, my son and I were able to, 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 to perform the practice. You know? So I know that those people had something I didn't have, had knowledge and skill I didn't have, and I wanted what they had. And so I got close to them, and I learned from them. You do the same if you're learning to play guitar or learning to kayak. It's the same in politics. Find someone who's a great practitioner and learn from them how they do the things they're doing. That's why it's so critical in our program that the way we learn is by bringing practitioners in and giving them chances to coach and mentor our participants. And they love to do that, although it's curious that so little of this is actually done. In fact, Aristotle said over 2,000 years ago, it's a surprising fact about politics that the practitioners of it, politicians, spend so little time actually trying to teach other people the practice that they've acquired. If they would spend a little less time speechifying in the Agora and a bit more time cultivating newcomers, they would be doing us all a service. I look at what's happening in our city politics and the failure of some of our senior politicians to cultivate people to come along behind them, which leaves us in a situation of sort of relative chaos when they step down. One of the things politicians need to do when they take on the job is to cultivate others. But we don't have institutions that, that make this possible. And that's really the purpose of, 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 of our institution. So um, I, guess, I guess maybe um, I'll stop there. Maybe, maybe perhaps make one, one final observation. And, and that, is, that is this. And this is a big theme in the book. That um, in talking about learning the practice of politics and giving some examples of what we're trying to do in this program, you'll notice that I've said very little about rules and incentives. And in fact, when we think about what practical wisdom is, rules and incentives play almost no role. Um, you do, I think you do need some basic rules to get going on a practice. You know, if you were to, certainly if you're going to learn, as, 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 you know, to take the example of scuba diving, there are some rules that you have to learn if you're going to be a good scuba diver. There's some rules you have to know if you're going to be a lawyer or a judge or a doctor. But much of your practice is not really about simply following rules. It's about exercising judgment, and it's about reflecting on the practice as you're doing it. And we have a bit of a tendency, I think, in our society where we see things not working well to think what we really need here are better rules, and we need to tighten up the incentives and give people incentives to do the right thing. And if we could just sort of punish people for doing bad things and incentivize them doing good things, then we will get the practices that we want. So, um, for example... Uh, we might say, let's have mandatory minimum sentences. Let's require the judges, as a rule, throw people in jail if after three times they've committed a crime. Or let's create incentives by, let's say, why don't we give more money to schools that perform better on test scores? Now, what do we do when we use rules and incentives in that way? We take away from the judge the discretion of judging, the discretion of saying, what was the crime committed here, and what were the circumstances, and who was the victim, and who was hurt, and why did this happen? And let's get a sentence that matches up with all of that. that. That's judgment. You take that away. Now we just have a rule. So naturally, you're going to have people who are going to be more harshly penalized than they should be. And maybe some people will be penalized appropriately. What happens when schools have to meet certain test scores in order to move up and get funding? As we see it happening increasingly in the United States. Teachers te teach to the test rather than teaching the kids. In fact, there's a system in, that was set up in, in Chicago where... Um, the teachers were actually told, in your class, you're going to have um, really bright kids. They're doing fine. Ignore them. 
because they're doing fine. You got kids who are really doing very poorly, they're hopeless. Forget about it. In the middle are the kids who you can bump up enough to improve how we perform as a school on the standardized tests. Focus on them. Focus on the bubble kids, they call them. Focus on the bubble kids because if you improve their scores, the whole institution looks better, we get more funding. Now, how demoralizing is that to the practice of teaching? To be telling people, forget about your most talented and the ones who are really struggling. And just focus on the ones that are in that place where you can improve the performance of your school. That's a perverse use of incentives. Um, we use incentives and rules because we want to get results. We want transparency and accountability. I understand that. But I think it's really important. Part of the goal of this book and part of the goal of our program is to say, at the heart of almost all of the professions, and politics is a profession, whether we like it or not, is a practice. And that practice aims at a public good. And it's really worthwhile investing in cultivating wise practice, reflective practice, not just in creating rules and incentives that we think will get the results. So that's why we're focusing so much on the, on the practical side. So I'll stop there. That gives us time, I think, for uh, questions and comments. Thank you very much.